Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on New Books in African American Studies, I'm chatting with Carleton College Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Political Science, none other than Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly, a critical Black studies scholar of political theory, political economy, intellectual history, and historical sociology. On today's episode, we discuss Dr. Burden-Stelly's path from graduate school through the early career profession as a committed scholar of Black studies, along with how she plans out her research and writing agenda. Dr. Burden-Stelly is one of my favorite thinkers out here in Black academia. And by the end of this episode, you might just say the same thing. Enjoy. New Books in African American Studies family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Burden Stelly. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, we've been kind of planning this out for a little while. And so, uh, Lord knows, we we probably couldn't have known uh, what exactly uh, would have happened the week that we had planned this interview. But uh, I'm certainly glad to be talking to one of the best minds in the entire game. No cap, y'all. No cap. We got Dr. <laughs> Cherise Burden-Stelly up in here on New Books in African American Studies. And uh, and as a quick aside, I'm happy because I'm sure you remember this story from AIHS from a couple years ago where you ribbed me about uh, talking long. So I'm going to talk long. I'm going to get out of my system now at the beginning and let you, and let you cook. Uh, but I just really want to tell you thank you um, because the advice that you gave me about, you know, about, uh, my, my, uh, podcasting, it actually has propelled me, uh, so, so, so much in the last, um, I'll say, uh, the last, I guess almost damn, almost two years, because I was in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, I just wanted to tell you at, at the tippy top of the convo, uh, appreciate you. Of course. And you, you know, to your credit, you have your podcasts have been uh, your interviews have been phenomenal. So kudos to you for, you know, getting together and facilitating these great conversations. Most staff, most staff. And so uh, once again, thank you for taking the time to chat with me uh, about a myriad of different topics today on new books in African-American studies. And uh, and as I said at the top, I think of you as uh, one of the top minds in not only Black studies but also just in 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 the game of of academe, um, just generally. Um, and so, I really see you at the vanguard of so many um, discussions. And so, I, I want to take us back, all the way back to your graduate school days. So, can you describe? Because for those who don't know, you uh, got your PhD at uh, at Berkeley. And so can you describe why you ultimately pursued a, a Black Studies PhD there? Yeah, well, first of all, th- and thank you for those uh, for those kind words. You know, um, I try to have something good to say. Uh, you know, academics get a bad rap. So I try to, you know, <laughs> say some good things on our behalf. Um, so... I wish I had some lofty story for you, honestly, Adam, but when I was applying for graduate school, um, I wanted to, I only applied to two programs, uh, Berkeley and one other one, 
um, both of which because they did not require the GRE. <laughs> I knew Amen. that I wanted to pursue a Black Studies degree because when I first started undergrad, I started as a history and political science major. Um, I And then it was my sophomore year. I want to say spring of my sophomore year. I took um, an African-American studies course with uh, Dr. Matthew Whitaker. And I was just like, okay, this, I, I need to learn more about, you know, um, studying Black life and Black experience more systematically. So that summer, I checked out 50 books from the library. There's 50 mm-hmm. books on a range of topics about the Black experience. And I read them and I was like, okay, I'm gonna be a Black studies major. So I switched my major to political science and African and African American studies. And I just, um, and even the stuff I took in political science, I try to take as much stuff on um, the African diaspora and uh, Black politics as possible. Um, and so I knew I wanted to get a PhD in Black studies and, um, you know, choosing between the other school and Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley was warmer. So um, that's why I went there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, consi- yeah, look, after living in um, New England for a little bit, for a couple of years and, and now in New Jersey, look, and as a native Floridian, I, I, I understand I understand the warmth factor in decisions for sure. So, yeah. and also, yeah, no, no, and 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 also to to for for the next question too, um, you know, one of the things that you know just from following you on social media, you know, uh, you know, now Doctor CBS is like a thing now. Like I, I just see just everywhere, and <laughs> it just makes me just so happy because I, I I know immediately who who folks are talking about here. So, um, just from seeing your different profiles, I just see just the love of black studies that you just talked to us about, uh, ultimately of why you chose um, black studies as a major and then now as a, as a, as a scholar, what does black studies actually mean to you? Yeah. So black studies, I'm just, I'm so black studies. Like I'm just black, blackity black. Like everything that I do <laughs> um, is just, you know, is so black studies in my perspective. And what that means to me is that, I understand blackness or, you know, the black experience as a heuristic for understanding broader phenomena. And then I also, you know, elsewhere I've talked about sort of black as methodology. And what that means to me is that like whatever I'm thinking about, whatever I'm studying, I'm always thinking, what did black people have to say about this? How did it impact black people? Um, You know, how did, you know, how were black people subjected to these particular phenomena? Um, if Black people were at the center of analyzing this thing, how would our knowledge be different? Um, what can we gain from um, the ways in which Black folks have written about or organized around this particular phenomenon? And so always I'm thinking about um, Black people. And for me, this is this is both Black Americans and sort of those racialized as Black uh, or African throughout the diaspora. I, I tend to focus a lot of African-Americans, but I understand this through an international or internationalist framework because I understand sort of the African-American experience as constitutively uh, international or internationalist in scope, especially thinking with somebody like Gerald Horn. And so our struggle for freedom has always, we've always sort of looked beyond U.S. borders because if we only looked here, um, you know, we might still be uh, enslaved, right? And so we've always mm-hmm. been a sort of a global people. Um, and so 
for me, Black studies is a way to sort of unapologetically, intentionally, and rigorously study um, Blackness as sort of a category, not only a category of um, structural domination, but perhaps more importantly, a category of sort of struggles for freedom, liberation, and human flourishing. Um, And Black Studies, for me, has always been a space to be able to do that work uh, in a way that I did not have to, um, to deal with hostility against me focusing on race. There's other types of pushbacks in terms of political economy, of course, which I I talk about. But like, Mm -hmm. in terms of focusing on Black people, like I can take as a given that Black people are human, that Black people are historical subjects, that Black people are agentive subjects. And being able to start there, that's that's not necessarily typical in other disciplines. Um, And being able to study Black people as the primary subject and not derivative of some quote unquote, important, more important subjects, that's not, you know, that's not typical in, in, in other disciplines. And so Black Studies really is a space of, of intellectual and epistemological, um, um, if not freedom, um, sort of capaciousness, you know, that allows me to be sort of questions driven as opposed to canon driven or methods driven um, or, or sort of uh, discipline driven. So, yeah. That is, that is just just so just so so rich, um, and so it, it it you know we've had a number of different discussions you know actually one of them I remember we had a discussion about this uh, in the last time we were all together in well in March of 2020 uh, we were both uh, getting uh, I think a lift to uh, to one of the locations for uh, the latest AIHS conference. And we uh, talked about uh, the difference between being a uh, Black Studies scholar trained in a Black Studies department at the doctoral level and someone that uh, does Black Studies yet also really lacks the formal training within it. Um, so um, let's rock the boat uh, right quick. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think you have a problem with doing that. Uh, so, what do you see as major differences between the two, and how do these differences inform your understanding of who really should represent the field? Yeah, this is a this question is a little bit complicated because the field of Black Studies was founded by people who didn't have PhDs in Black Studies, <laughs> and mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. that's really important. And people who sort of chose to, um put their time, energy, and training into um, the formation of Black studies as an insurgent interdiscipline within the academy. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. But for me, I think that my primary uh, gripe is when we now have sort of several generations of persons formally trained in Black studies, that is to say, people who made an intentional decision to get their PhD in the field. And Mm -hmm. I do think that Black studies has it's, um, you know, it is a, it's, it's our, it's a discipline. It is not, it's not sociology about black people. It's not history of black people. It's not, you know, political science, um, focused on black people. It is its own sort of discipline. It's a holistic approach. And so it's really a pushback against the ways in which, um, the Western Academy, the intellectual arm of the state siloed, um, siloed knowledge production, right? 
into into sort of separate um, separate separate spheres of influence. It's, it was a fundamental pushback against that project. It was also a way to bring together what we call gown and town. So you know, campus life with with community um, with a community orientation. Of course, as the as Black studies became more institutionalized, there's been a turn away from that from the quote unquote town aspect. But um, all of that to say, I think that those of us trained in Black studies still are not, when there's conversations about the future of Black studies or is Black studies in crisis or, or whatever these conversations are that tend to pop up every five to 10 years, there's still there can still be a dearth of scholars represented who are actually trained in the field. And I think that that's a problem. If you're having a conversation about sociology as a field or English as a field, you're not going to prioritize political scientists or economists, right? And so I feel like mm-hmm. there's still perhaps an inferiority complex within Black studies itself, where we still are hesitant to hire persons trained in our field. We still prioritize people with um, traditional disciplines and or people who do work that's quote unquote legible in dominant disciplines. Um, and so to me, I, I cannot really only speak for my myself and my own training. Um, I would never use Black studies as a stepping stone to get into a, a quote unquote real discipline or into a, a traditional discipline. Um, and, you know, I'm trained in Black studies because I want to work in Black studies, which also means that I have to be prepared to um, defend its existence all the time. That's built into being a Black studies scholar because Black studies. Um, interdisciplines and uh, and now more broadly, the humanities are always under constant attack as to like, is this or is this not relevant? Now, granted, because of the reactionary nature of the academy, now Black studies is sort of safe, right? Because of, you Mm -hmm. know, because of of the uh, the protests that have been happening. And so we owe a lot to social movements because um, in a sense, they sort of hold the line, if only temporarily, at the same time, there's this 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 turn to anti-racism that mm. is really, to me, um, can be seen as a sort of implicit, if not explicit, explicit attack on um, Black studies or a way to shift resources that would go to building up Black studies uh, departments, programs, and centers toward anti-racism. And um, this is not to say that persons who work in anti-racism centers or whatever are particular are are personally invested in, in that attack, but like we when we look at what the the logical outcomes are, uh, that's what they are. And so, you know, to make a short story long, as I always do, um, <laughs> I would say um, the difference between a black studies scholar or a scholar, even a scholar trained in a dominant discipline who's committed to black studies, is like, who do you cite? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to defend Black studies? Do you actually want to be in a Black studies um, program or department? Do you, do you simply see a Black studies program or department as a sort of shield from the racism or from the hostility of dominant disciplines, but not do, you know, but not take it intellectually seriously? Um, you know, how are you training your students? You know, are you training your students to actually be sociologists or political scientists or historians? Um, or are you training them to be Black studies scholars? Are you training them, are, do you value interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity? I think that these are all questions that we need to ask and we need to ask ourselves when we purport to be Black studies scholars. Um, or are we just saying that we're Black studies scholars for clout because we do some 
you know, we do, we study a black theme or a black topic or a black subject, right? Like what, what are our commitments, you know, intellectually, um, um, ethically, and also, also uh, materially, right? What, what do we value? And so, um, and this is also not to say that everybody with a PhD in black studies is going to be, is going to have the same types of commitments. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a complicated question, but I think that it's one that we, we constantly need to ask. I think it's a conversation we need to have. And when we're having these conversations about black studies for the love of all things holy, please include people with PhDs in black studies. It's ridiculous not to. And it's, it's, it's an affront. I think to the field when we when we um, overlook the scholars <laughs> who are actually trained in our discipline. Look, I'm so look. If you can see me right now, I'll be cheesing like I just seen something good because I just heard something good. Lord of mercy, uh, because I've been you know like I said <laughs> we've been we've been having these conversations uh, intermittently over the, the last year or two, and so I think um, you you just provided a lot of uh, a lot of great information and a lot of great context and a lot of great action points for our listeners and for myself too, uh, especially because like, you know, just to put myself in, in the situation for a second, you know, I, when I graduate with my PhD from Rutgers, it would have been, I would have had three degrees and every single one would be history. Um, and so, you know, as someone who loves to, uh, promote the scholarship and and get excited about the scholarship of folks like yourself and and many other people within uh, Black Studies, uh, formerly trained uh, in Black Studies. I also know that my own training is in African American history. That is, you know, that is my space. But that doesn't mean that I can't and and that I don't. Right, Lord knows if there's one book as someone who writes about the American revolution that I value about the most is Gerald's horns, you know, counter revolution, uh, of 1776, um, you know, discussing, um, the counter revolution of slavery, um, that I'm looking at behind me, the counter revolution of 1776. And so it's one of my favorite books and it's one that it, it's controversial. I've, I've talked to people and they, you know, I've heard people say that they, you know, don't really fuck with his arguments. I'm just like, this brother's taking it back to the glorious revolution, quote unquote. He's taking it all the way back. And so um, I just love, you know, as, as you say, you know, uh, you know, this is a Gerald Horn stand account. Like this is truly a Gerald Horn stand account between us, like for real. And so I just love that you put that into the world. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Gerald, he is, you know, he's clearly a historian. He's like the a historian's historian. Like he, like I like to say, he's forgotten more than most of us will ever learn mm. about even our own <laughs> areas of specialization. He's one of my, um, somebody I consider to be one of my most important mentors. Um, and so he's somebody that's, he's, you know, trained as a historian, but he's somebody that I think is committed to the project of Black Studies. Because even if you look, even as he's tied, you know, to the archive in particular ways, he is making sort of black studies arguments. He is he is not shy. He is not sort of um, you know timid in any way to to center the the broad global international experience of black people of African people. Um, he puts that at the center of his um, of his analysis. You know he's a staple at the National Council for Black Studies, and I think that 
he is um, somebody who is committed, you know, committed to the project and would have no qualms about, you know, you know, uh, he wouldn't take it as an attack <laughs> um, for, you know, me saying that we need to sort of prioritize or center Black Studies scholars and Black Studies. I think that he will, you know, that's something that would resonate with him. So, um, but, you know, Gerald, you know, there's nobody like Gerald Horn. He's a singular person. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. And you can just tell by um, this discussion that uh, Dr. Bernselli is someone who is certainly excited about the work that she does and someone whose uh, research is just really at the cutting edge. And so, um, you know, this is really where the heart of this qu- next question comes from. Um, so, you know, I know that you're excited about it, but I want to hear you you know, wax on about it, Lord knows. Uh, so so what really excites you most about your research agenda that, for those who don't know, interrogates the transnational entanglements of U.S. racial capitalism, anti-communism, and anti-Black structural racism? In addition to, uh, she also examines 20th century Black anti-capitalist thought with a particular focus on W.B. Du Bois and scholar activists in his intellectual community. And uh, I'm reading that from from your uh, new uh, uh, page as well. So uh, just in case you wanted to know where I got that from. Uh, so, so really, what excites you about this particular research agenda? Yeah, I am deeply sort of concerned with, like, how are we going to get out of this shit? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how how, you know what what does liberation mean and what has it meant over time? And to me, the people who tend to have the answers um, that I'm looking for are, you know, my black radical squad. So these are these are black communists, um, socialists, um, revolutionary nationalists, and other types of, of leftists who really have always been looking at the quote unquote Negro question, but sp- specifically from the lens of political economy. And, and sort of of social relations. And so, um, you know, I'm trained, my dissertation advisor, Percy Hinton, who is another one of, you know, somebody who's very, very important to the formation of, um, of my thinking is also a Marxist, a Guyanese Marxist, right? Um, um, a historical sociologist. And so um, I'm always concerned with thinking about sort of what are the structural and material conditions of Black folks? What have they been over time um, and over space? And what can we do? You know, how have they been challenged and what can we do to to eradicate um, those conditions? And I think I personally think about blackness. I call it, you know, um, so the I, I refer to the political economy of blackness as a sort of structural location of blackness or the, the unique relationship of black folks to the capitalist mode of production. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who study, you know, um, Africanists and African formations prior to the rise of capitalism. But I'm literally looking at, like, what are the entanglements of capitalism and anti-Blackness? How have they been mutually constitutive and mutually informing? And and as I sort of embark on that study, I also see the ways in which anti-radicalism or the, the deep hostility to, to radical formations um, is also imbued in sort of the maintenance of capitalism and the subjection of people racialized as black. And so, um, you know, once you start seeing these connections everywhere I look, it's like, oh, anti-radicalism and anti-blackness, anti-radicalism and anti-blackness, right? And I think that this is mm-hmm. very, very important because, you know, as I've stated elsewhere, you know, the the one thing the United States hates as much as black people is radicals. 
and this is because it's a racial capitalist society. It is a society of private property and, 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 and accumulation built on racial hierarchy, right? And so what that means is you're against people who want to redistribute wealth, expropriate or redistribute wealth, and you're against people from who you need to expropriate untold resources and from who you can rationalize that dispossession, right? So the white working class is exploited, but it's Black folks, right, who are constitutively workers, generally speaking, somebody like Hubert Harrison makes the argument that Black people are the most sort of full, fully uh, proletarianized group or the mm-hmm. most fully sort of working class group, right? Um, but then we it's also legitimated that Black people will be the sort of drawers of water and hewers of wood, right? Which is simultaneously, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it, you know, that's drawn from the Bible. But if you think about it, that's a working, that's a, you know, it's saying that Black people are constitutively meant to be workers <laughs> or servants, mm. right? And that they're, you know, that Black skin because becomes a, a badge of um, servitude, both in the condition of enslavement, but then also in the condition, you know, the, the, the post-emancipation um, world. And so formations like communism or socialism that are demanding, um, that have, you know, in the conscience of the United States have historically been interracial. And this is not to say that they, that, you know, uh, white chauvinism hasn't been a problem, but they've been historically uh, uh, interracial and have also been sort of um, um, struggles also for civil rights and equality for black folks. Like the, like the U S is not having that. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) Like mm -hmm. the U S is not having any redistribution of resources or any equality, any sort of economic equality. And somebody like Oliver Cromwell Cox, who I've been, who, you know, I've been beating that drum for a while now. um, You know, he he argues that you cannot have political democracy without economic democracy. And we, and we sort of see that playing out because, and the other thing about black, something that I'm writing about in my, my monograph is like, like, in the conscience of the United States, because it is constitutively anti-Black, everything about every gain is wholly reversible, right? And this is the problem with having a solely political struggle without an economic struggle is that these gains are reversible. Um, and we see that with the rollback of the Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, but the Voting Rights Act itself is a manifestation of that because we have the 15th Amendment. Like, the mm-hmm. 15th Amendment is supposed to ensure voting. And then you have to have a Voting Rights Act 100 years later. Right. And so so um, all of that to say, I think that we need to struggle for a new society. uh, And I think black liberation and socialism are central to that. And so um, my work um, coheres around that belief in studying people who um, have struggled um, in similar ways and who um, have come to similar conclusions. Mm. And so, you know, we, we, we mentioned this a little before um, in terms of uh, social media and, and the ways that social media in a way can, you know, help people learn a little more about someone's uh, political analysis. And let me tell you, I learned a lot from you. I laugh from you. I like, damn, she said that from you all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, you talked about the Bible before. So it's like, honestly, you're one of the people I often tune to on Twitter for a word, like a pastor preaching from a pulpit, right? Uh, pastor Burton Stelly have been the 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 house, you know, saying, <laughs> you know, go go ahead like you surely Caesar, you know, holding my mule, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, folks, like I said, can also receive your word not only on Twitter, but also in a wide array of publications like the Journal of Intersectionality, 
Boston Review. Check out, you know, your y'all. Y'all need to check out this review that uh, Dr. Burton Stelly just did of a uh, recent book cast along with Black uh, Perspectives, CLR James Journal, and much, much, much more. Uh, but to pr- produce this work, though, requires uh, a whole lot of focus. I'm learning that right now, trying to do this stuff from my dissertation perspectives. How do you organize your time to produce such a, a, a dense amount of work? How, how do you do that? Well, I think it's important to establish a pipeline. Mm. And so a pipeline means that there's always something that's coming out, right? And you're always working on something. So some of the, so some problems that scholars can face is you have a lot of output at one time and then years of nothing, you know, and then, um, you know, you might have a book or whatever. And so like for me, the, all of the advice that I got was to always maintain a pipeline. Um, and so, you know, that might mean, for example, after you finish your dissertation, you go through and see what's going to be articles and what is going to be go toward your book manuscript, for example. Um, so, you know, and I, I have a lot of like uh, outward facing scholarship, which would be like, you know, um, blogs or essays and venues like, you know, Monthly Review or um, Boston Review. And, you know, that with regard to that, I usually if I'm doing something that's sort of non peer reviewed, it is either coming out of a broader peer reviewed work or I'm turning that into a peer-reviewed work. And so, um, you know, Gerald Horn said one time, like, use every part of the animal when it comes to writing. Um, So even if you don't use a paragraph, a a section of something, set that aside, never throw it away and see what that can be, you know, turned into. Um, The other thing, you know, that I was talking to you about before we started recording is that, like, I never start from scratch. I always use something from whether it's a paragraph or a particular framing, I always use something from an article or an essay that I've already written because oftentimes the hardest thing can be um, getting started. And so um, if you already have, if you already have that sort of that head start, it can be just, if not, if only psychologically, it can be sort of easier to get, to get started. And I also want to make sure that um, there's through lines with my work because I can't, you know, sometimes I focus on black studies. Sometimes I'll focus on, you know, um, the anti-radical state apparatus. Sometimes I'll focus on racial capitalism. And in my mind, they're linked, but I know that if there's pieces from other works, there is a, the through line becomes a little bit more, um, salient. Um, I use planning. I, I'm a planner. And so, you know, I think it was Eisenhower or whatever. He's a bum, but, you know, even <laughs> a, a broken clock is wrong. So I said that he said, like, you know, plans are futile, but planning is everything. So two tools that I actually use are one is called Power Sheets and one is called the Get to Workbook. And so these are sort of like their goals. Um, so they're, they're about sort of goals and projects. And so I also think that. um goals are really important. Like think about like where you want to be in a year and three years and five years um, and beyond, right? So that you're being intentional about what you're writing. You're not just sort of reacting um, or just doing shit for, you know, some, for no reason whatsoever, right? Like be thinking about, okay, what is the contribution that I want to make? 
what are the milestones that I want to hit in my career, whether it's passing 30 review or getting tenure and like what, what are the requirements for that and how can my pipeline be um, organized around that, you know, who are my audiences? And so um, I was last year, one of my goals was to have a broader sort of outward facing presence um, because I didn't just want to have an academic uh, academic audience for my work. And I think that, you know, so for example, I joined Twitter in July of 2020 or something like that. That, and I think that that was actually really helpful in terms of helping me to sort of have a, a broader outward facing, um, to have, be able to have outward facing conversations. And so Mm-hmm. Um, if that's one of your goals, you know, what are the types of things you have to write and what are the types of ven- venues in which you have to publish to be able um, to do that? Um, so I think that I, I try to set goal. I, I do sort of goals planning, a yearly goals plan, and then um, I check in quarterly and monthly. Um, I also use spreadsheets like many people (laughs) in the academy have asked me about these spreadsheets that I use. And I just I do that because it helps me to sort of plan my days and my weeks and to see what I have to do each week. And so, um, you know, I don't always stick to those plans. You know, you can plan beautifully. The hardest part is sticking to them. But at least I, I have a wide I can see sort of in front of me what I have to do. Um, and, and it also helps me to more easily say yes or no, um, because people will ask you to do all sorts of things. And it's to, for me, it's easy to say no to things I actually don't want to do. Like, I don't struggle with that at all. But mm-hmm. it's harder to say no to things that you want to do. And so but the thing is, you have to leave, you know, you have to say no to good things to make room for the, to leave room for the really great things. And I think that something that was really difficult um, when I first, you know, my first couple of years was my schedule was so full. So for example, my father passed away um, March 6th of 2019. And I literally was Mm -hmm. at a conference and had a conference the next week. And so I just remember, you know, sitting there like, how, how am I going to be able to go to a funeral, for example, right? Like, that was how um, full my schedule was. And so the other thing that that, you know, we need to be mindful of is like literally planning margin time, literally planning downtime. But all of that requires that, you know, like what's on your plate and have a sort of idea in mind as to how you're going to work on everything. So um, I worked with a coach, um, academic coach, Katie Linder. She's amazing. Um, And that was helpful for me at a certain, I would say after my second year going into my third year because I felt like I was um, progressing, but I wasn't necessarily flourishing. And so, you know, you have to have, you know, be in tune with yourself as well. And again, like really check back on the goals that you set, revise them when necessary, and then get the, you know, outside supports that you need. So, you know, like even the best athletes, like a a Kobe Bryant or a, you know, Serena Williams, they have coaches, you know, because you need help. And so whether that is, you know, turning lateral, turning to lateral peers or mentors or whatever, um, being in a, in a community of scholars and, and surrounding yourself with people um, who can provide accountability or provide feedback is also important. So um, everything that I've accomplished is attributable to my intellectual community. Um, I will never be one of these, like, I did it all on my own, all by myself. Like, you know, 
all, you know, all day by myself, no help. Like, that's not me. Like, I am wholly of my intellectual communities. And I think that that's real. That's probably the the most important thing is like, you got to squat up, um, squat up and plan. Those are the, those are the two things that I would say have been most important to, um, to my productivity. Mm. Amen to that, ABWH parliamentarian. I hear ya. <laughs> yes, I. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love it. I'm love, and I and and I love. Um, we'll be working together for the next two years, uh, since since I'm the national uh, social media director, uh, yeah, for for ABWH. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's gonna be dope, and so I'm just super excited to to see what we do. Um, in the next two years and pray to God that we can get a symposium at some point, because I ain't going to lie, talking about warm places at the beginning of 2020, I was waiting to get to LA in, in December. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, this pandemic had a little something else to say, but, uh, but I'm sure we'll get there eventually. Um, but also, um, you know, with everything that you just said, you, you just laid out a lot of amazing information um, because right now, like right now, I'm like at this point now where I'm like, damn, like this organization thing, it, it, you know, it, it comes and goes some days you're just like, I'm on it. Like, I'm like, I'm moving and grooving, like, and everything feels dope. But sometimes, uh, it's just, it's just, it's like, damn, it is seven o'clock and <laughs> what did I actually get done? <laughs> right. And so uh, I really appreciate you for, for, for providing so much information because I think, um, I, I was taking mental notes and going back to the podcast and I'm sure, uh, folks will too, when they uh, listen. Um, and I'm sure also people would be interested to know just about your own writing process. So can you describe what your writing process is like? Well, it's erratic <laughs> at this point. So I'm not going to lie, like much like everybody else, like the pandemic has, uh, my productivity has taken a hit and something that has concealed that or why it may not seem that way is because of my pipeline. There's things that are coming out, things come out consistently because I've been working on things, right? And so I like to say like my past self in some ways showed up for my current self because I have, I have, you know, a body of work that is continually coming out. But like, I'm somebody that I always write in coffee shops, or Mm. like out in the world, I do not write at home. And I rarely write in my office. And so being trapped in my house has really, it's really, really difficult for me to sit down and write for like, the six or eight hours, those blocks of time that I'm, I'm used to. And so part of what I've had to do is like, reorient my thinking from getting back to that writing and really thinking about what does my writing look like now? What does, you know, who is my pandemic writing self? Um, And not trying to get back to what, what was, cause like, you know, the way I wrote my dissertation was different than the way, you know, um, I established my sort of postdoctoral pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, um, so my writing process for a very, for a long time, I, I have been in diff- various types of writing groups, and that's helpful. Um, but something that's also helpful in that regard is switching it up, because at a certain point, you become too comfortable, <laughs> and they stop being sort of accountability or productivity structures, and then you just get in there and be kicking it, you know, and that's that's mm-hmm. not very useful. Um, but I do, I would say in a general sense, writing groups, like virtual writing groups or in-person writing groups, um, are very um, important. 
I also do a sort of what I call writing retreats or reading retreats where I'll, I'll set aside like a block of time between three and five days where I'm just, I organize my days around like reading. I'm trying to get through some particular aspect of writing or reading. So it's like I'm trying to read a certain amount of books or I'm trying to complete an article or a particular section of something. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do these reading or writing retreats often alone, but sometimes with others. Um, and then I, I, but I strive to write consistently um, to the point where if I haven't written something, if I haven't written at least 30 minutes, I feel like my day is off. Um, Mm -hmm. so I just, I do try to write consistently, but the other, but I would say the most important thing is to sort of, I try to know myself as a writer to pay attention to when it's an input season and when it's an output season to pay attention when like I need to have, when it's like, you know, um, it's a fallow season, a planting season or a harvest season. So, you know, to use an analogy, um, and to, you know, pay attention to like my rhythms and vicissitudes. So it's like, do I write better in the morning or in the evening? Or, you know, if I'm trying to to work for a long amount of time, what are, what is the best time to write and what's the best time to maybe um, edit or read? Um, mm-hmm. And so I would say the, the best thing about my writing process is really paying attention to what works for me and not trying to copy somebody else's writing process or writing style. It's like what works for me and then also being okay with the fact that that's going to change over time. Um, and then just listening to myself. So the fact that like, you know, it's difficult, like writing is difficult right now, like not saying that as a failure, but that I'm in a, I'm in, that's a season of writing in which I'm in. And so I can do perhaps smaller things or, you know, write in smaller chunks. So for example, prioritize Pomodoros as opposed Mm -hmm. to large writing blocks. And so I guess, you know, I try to have flexibility with myself, but to always be sort of doing something toward um, moving a project forward. Um, but it's hard. It's a struggle, especially the the manuscript on which I'm working. It is hard. It's uh, much harder than I anticipated because I'm somebody who always envisioned myself as a book writer. Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard, you know, and it's a struggle. And, and I think that that's um, that's OK. <laughs> I, I accept it. And I feel like I've, I'm a little bit more comfortable accepting it because I trust myself as a writer. Um, and I know that I'll, I will get to a place where um, it doesn't feel so difficult. And because I already have a body of scholarship. Um, so it's not as if there'll be any type of gap. Um, right. So, so I would say consistency, striving toward consistency, striving toward routine, knowing myself as a writer and having some flexibility have all been really important to, um, to my writing process. Okay. And so, you know, transitioning back to your days at Berkeley, because, um, as a PhD student now, I'm always, uh, thinking about, uh, how some of my, uh, uh favorite scholars, i.e. you, uh, kind of transitioned in that space from, uh, from graduate school kind of habits into where you are now. Um, can you describe, uh, you, you did it uh, a bit uh, already, but I want to hear a little more if possible about how your, um, if, if at all, your writing and organizing habits have changed since your days at uh, Berkeley too. Um, because sometimes people think that people are finished products and that you've been doing this for 
since Jesus was on the earth or whatever. So like, I'm, I'm very interested to know like how these things have uh, ebbed and flowed, um, especially from your days um, in graduate school. <laughs> I was a scrub in graduate school. I'm not gonna lie. Like I <laughs> did not have like no semblance of writing practice. It really wasn't until I would say my dissertation fellowship when I went away in 2016, no, 2015 for my writing fellowship at Amherst College and just had this huge block of time in which I had to, you know, I, I set aside to complete my dissertation that I really began to write regularly. When I was writing seminar papers and all that, that was two weeks before the end of the semester. Like, let's be perfectly honest. Um, because you're, you know, as they say, like your strength can be your weakness. Being smart and being able to produce um, relatively quickly can make you procrastinate, you know, and it can be, you know, it can make you, um, you know, it can, it can instill some, some bad habits actually. But um, I would say like throughout my dissertation fellowship and really starting with my postdoc, which I did at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, that was really when I started thinking about process and thinking about consistency and also getting to know myself as a writer. Um, And I read books, like there's this book called Better Than Before by Gretchen Rubin, there was like a book called Atomic Habits. I really got into like that sort of like, quote unquote, self-help or whatever literature to really think about um, like, what do I want and how do I get there? Right. I think that that was really important. Like, who am I as a scholar? Who am I as a producer of knowledge, as a writer? Um, that really started, I would say, po- after graduate school. And so I've been really thinking deeply about if I want to become a higher ed coach, because I think it's a, if if I had known if I had been that attuned as a graduate student, perhaps I would be sort of, you know, farther ahead um, than I am now. And so, and I think that just even realizing that these are questions that one needs to ask or that one can ask is really important. And I think it's really important to for, for graduate students. And so um, I, I wish I had been more intentional in, in graduate school. Um, and had 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 more professionalization also, to be honest. But, you know, we learn as we go. Um, and yeah, so I just, you know, I was I was a, a scrub in graduate school. <laughs> like, I'm just not gonna <laughs> lie. You know, I'm probably still a scrub now. I don't know. But like, yeah, so uh, I have nothing, you know, nothing insightful to offer about about grad school other than start earlier than I did, you know? Mm. Mm. And look, like I said, like you, you really out here in the streets, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, got people like uh, a no name and, uh, you know, so many dope people like, you know, uh, big up in your work publicly. Um, And so like, uh, matter of fact, weren't you, hold on, let me think. Um, The, 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 the filmmaker who did, uh, sorry to bother you. um, What's his name? Yeah, yeah, you did a uh, you did a joint with him f- for the um, for the Claudia Jones uh, group as well, right? Yeah, we and we did a follow up conversation also that will be on the the New Dawn podcast soon, sometime this month. So yeah, that was but that was that's look that's random. So like that literally, I just tweeted like I would like to have one substantive conversation with boots riley and he just tweeted back i don't even think he's on twitter anymore but he tweeted right. back like all right let's let's do an event you know like that's completely random and like kind of happens then same with no name like yeah i wrote i wrote a thing that she happened to like you know what i'm saying and so 
Um, that's random. I don't I don't attribute any of that to me necessarily. I mean, I, I other than the fact that I had written something that <laughs> yeah. um, a prominent, you know, a celebrity happened to like, but that's, you know, that's not like because I'm so dope or whatever. It's just that's it was what it was. <laughs> no, no, I, I get that. I I'm just saying that I was literally just minding my own damn business. I was like, what the, what? Hold on. Like, like black left as fuck. Like, like, or black, black left AF. Like what? And so it was just really cool. Like, it's kind of like, um, uh, uh, catching like, was it the secondary, uh, dopeness that, you know, just like touching the hem of the garment. Let me, let me stop with the biblical (laughs) metaphors here. But, uh, but, but no, I I just want to say it was just really cool to see, uh, because, you know, not to even necessarily like dip our toes into the the celebrity culture necessarily, but I think it's just really cool to see um, when you're just minding your business, doing your work, how things serendipitously can just happen like that. Um, because at the end of the day, you are just doing your work and you just like, you know, put something out there and then, you know, you see what happens. Um, and I think we all in a year as wild as 2020 and as the few days of 2021 have been, I think, you know, some cool serendipity is also something cool to, uh, to, to, to think about too, and how that, um, can come into all of our lives too. Absolutely. And something, you know, something that I'm really, um, grateful about with respect, um, to no name is that I feel like we were, we are sort of, we, you know, trying to figure out what does it mean to be radical or to be, you know, to have a particular type of revolutionary consciousness, but not necessarily be an activist or organizer. It's like, how do we use our, you know, she, of course she, her platform is much bigger, much greater. I'm, I'm in no way <laughs> comparing saying that I'm prominent mm-hmm. in any way, but it's like, you know, how do we use our resources and, and, you know, power for good? Because being an academic, like, you know, Walter Rodney said, you know, intellectuals can are enemies of the people until proven otherwise, right? And so what mm. does it mean to like use your relative access and privilege and um, resources to really be like about that action? You know, not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be sort of, um, you know, um, on the ground organizing or does it, right? So I think that, that you know, the conversations that we've had um, were that just a sort of mutual recognition of really struggling. It's like, you know, how do we do this shit? Right. Um, and so I ultimately have joined the organization black Alliance for peace. Everybody, you know, join support. Um, I, I have joined the organization finally. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still learning. I'm learning like what it means to do work beyond sort of the Academy. Um, um, but yeah, so, so that's what I appreciated most about that was sort of, being able to, uh, was that sort of mutual recognition in terms of like, how do we use sort of academic work on the one hand and culture work on the other hand um, um, to sort of be on the right side of history, if you will. Mm-hmm. In a lot of our discussion, uh, not only in the various biblical metaphors and uh, references and other spiritual uh, connections too, uh, that we've uh, broached here in our discussion so far over the last 50 plus minutes, um, it's a question that I've become that I've become rather to to ask a lot of my guests. Um, do you feel called to the work that you do? Uh, well, I, I feel like I don't have no other skills. I, I've jokingly said, you know, it was either the academy or the poll. 
um, that I don't, I don't, I don't really have, uh, you know, I, if, if it, to the extent that smart is a skill, you know, I'm pretty good at researching, I guess, like, you know, it's more so that like, it's, you know, I'm good at reading, researching and talking shit. And that's what it is to be an academic. And so, um, I think that, you know, and I'm also third generation. So like my parents, um, went to college and have advanced degrees. Uh, my grandma, um, has advanced degrees, you know, right. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, and so I was one of those people that it wasn't like sort of, if I was going to college, it was more so like, you know, when and where, um, um, and so, you know, at one point I thought I was going to go to law school. I wanted to be a judge. So, but then mm. I was like, oh, I'm gonna be academic. <laughs> so that's kind of what it was. So I don't know if it's necessarily a calling, but I will say, I, I have always said that, I, so Booker T. Washington um, talks about having alignment of head, heart, and hand. And I think that I have that as an academic. And so to the extent that that represents something being a calling, then sure. Okay. Okay. Repping for the uh, Booker T. Washington and the I am not repping for Booker T. Washington. The, I know, I know. I'm playing. I'm playing with you. <laughs> That's why I was like, hold on. Booker T. Washington. I did not expect him to enter the chat. Uh, but I am glad that he did because I didn't even think about that quote. But, like, but, but you know, it is a good um, way to think about alignment um, in the work that we do. And so, um, because I know you're not going to invoke him in this question, uh, what people past and present inspire you the most to write research and teach? Um, so probably present of course is, um, Gerald Horn. I would never, he, I would never aspire to write as much as he does. Like it's, it's, I just feel like it's structurally impossible. I started too late. <laughs> like it's <laughs> not going to happen. But I think that his sort of commitment to the work is, is very inspirational um, Eula Taylor, I think Eula Taylor has a particular ethical commitment to teaching and mentoring and training that I try, I've tried to sort of, um, internalize and, and model, um, Jamima Pierre, who is a scholar at you know, UCLA, um, uh, she is fearless and I always try to have courage, uh, you know, both, both Jamima Pierre and then, and Peter James Hudson, who, who we, uh, we are the three editors of the newly formed uh, Black Agenda Review. Um, I, in terms of, of the sort of pol- having a particular politics in the academy, a radical politics can be very difficult um, when you are really about those politics and it's not just performative. So those two have really been, um, they're somebody, they're people that um, inspire me and who I try to uh, emulate to a certain degree. And in terms of more lateral peers, there's something called pace setters. So people who are, who do particular types of work that you want to do and who, um, you know what I mean? Who, who are more attainable mm-hmm. than like Gerald Horn, for example. So for me, those people have really been, um, Ashley Farmer and Adam Gattacho. Um, so those are two people who I'm like, okay, they have really, really good, really well-received books that are, are also teachable. They published in various venues. They, uh, you know, they're, um, um, again, ethical people, <laughs> they, they, they do good work. And so those are, those are two other people. Um, I would say historically, of course, Claudia Jones, um, you know, um, Du Bois in particular ways, Hubert Harrison. So these are all people who are also like 
what I would call like battle, you know, they're kind of like battle rappers. Like they drug, you know, they, they, <laughs> they were mm-hmm. critical people, right. They did work. And then they were also critical. Like they, they um, were kind of no holds barred. And that's something that I, I value um, because I feel like we can be quite lily livered <laughs> as academics and, um, and, you know, not necessarily battle tested. Of course, Oliver Cox, whose work has become very influential to my own. Um, there's many people, I know that there's a bunch of people that, um, that I'm leaving out, but, but I would say, um, oh, Walter Rodney, duh, and Patricia Rodney, (laughs) um, of course, of course, I identify as a Rodneyist, like that, you know, that's my way, I guess my shorthand for quote unquote black Marxist, um, but, you know, definitely Walter Rodney and, and his, uh, amazing widow, Patricia Rodney, who slept on and underrated but is actually amazing in her own right. Um, um, so yeah, those are, those are, I would say my mains. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. And so um, you, you've talked throughout the podcast about political commitments and um, your orientation to the work. And, you know, especially in a week where we see, you know, the wildness that we've seen in the capital among many other regions of the world. Um, what world are you ultimately fighting for? Black liberation and socialism. Next question. <laughs> there it is. Period. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is the most straightforward answer to this question or any question I've ever had. And I'm glad that you took the title for that one today <laughs> and forevermore. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, you know, this is, this is interesting. And so, um, to, to take that, um, I'm also thinking, you know, you had mentioned before, uh, in terms of, of space and, um, what you're used to in terms of the kind of spaces that you work in. Um, so obviously in the pandemic, you're working from home in ways that you had never done before, but to think imaginatively for a second, um, and I, the first person I ever asked this to was uh, was JT, and you're the second person I'm asking this to. So, so I'm actually really interested to know what you're going to say here. If you had all the money in the world and or money was not an issue, and you needed to build from scratch your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like, sound like, and smell like? Paint the picture for the listeners, my friend. Yes. Oh, so JT, you know, JT Roan, he's uh, he's another one of my sort of a lateral kind of inspirations. Very, very amazing doing all sorts of good stuff. So, um, yeah, I need to go back and listen to what he said. Um, I guess for me, it will really be um, sort of a, a commune space. It would be sort of a, a multi-acred um, space with all, all the homies. So we have a, a master, a, a masterminds group, um, that of, of black junior, uh, black and brown junior faculty, um, that sort of, so, so my masterminds group and the other sort of, of, of junior and maybe some senior homies in a, a large co-working space on our co-op, you know, our, our cooperative, like farm, you know, um, that's where that's sort of what I what I envisioned, kind of like a co-working space. Um, it would smell like freedom or something. I don't know. 
patchouli, I guess, or vanilla. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what would it sound like? You know, it would probably be, it would be bustling, but not overly noisy. You know, um, I would probably have headphones on as I always do. I think that, you know, I envision us stopping from time to time and asking questions, having little debates about something, um, you know, reading over, you know, each other's work. Like, oh, can you can you make see if this paragraph makes sense? But it's definitely a collective space. It's definitely a vibrant space. Um, some of the homies have kids, so I imagine their kids sort of roaming around, um, you know, being co-cared for. Um, so there's not just one person like you watch the kids and everybody else works. Like we just, you know, they just are out here just doing stuff and we just, you know, whatever. Um, I just, I don't know. I just think that that's, that's what it would be like. And then, um, you know, um, so let's say look, sound, smell. I think it would be bright. Like if they were, ha- I like bright spaces. I hate when it's dark. Cause I feel like I can't see like mm-hmm. I, if, even if it's, if there's light, but I can't see well, like I, I like really, really bright, almost sort of like, insanely bright spaces <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just really like that um so yeah so that's that's that would be my ideal working space there would be you know snacks hopefully healthy snacks coffee tea just around and you know I'll probably work I generally work at a desk um sometimes you know maybe in a beanbag chair with you know my laptop on my lap from sometimes or whatever but uh <laughs> that's the working space man squad land space discourse you know um yeah that that would be my ideal i think so i'm deviating for just one second you mentioned having headphones on with music playing what music would you be playing and also what music do you play currently well sometimes i just yeah sometimes i just have headphones on with nothing playing um but It depends on what I'm doing. If I'm doing Beer Rising, I'm listening to like Chill Hop. I'm not going to lie. It's just like a little channel on YouTube. It's like Chill Hop. There's no words. It's kind of like, you know, or some like, you know, jazz instrumental music. You know, if I'm if I'm vibing or like reading over something or I'm listening to, you know, Ratchet Bangers, period. It's so Amen. crazy. But, you know, the song that I really like, um, Cry Baby right now by uh, Megan Thee Stallion. Mm. Um, yeah, that's I don't know why that's my the jam that I've sort of uh, I'm I'm still I'm still bumping WAP too. Like that's the type of music I just I like I like music that makes me feel like I'm the shit. Like that's the type of music I like to listen to when um I'm writing. I don't know. It's it's you know, that's just what it is. But so yeah, that's what's in my headphones. That's what's up. <laughs> that that that's what's up. Like I and, I and I'm so glad that that you're that you're open to like be asking these questions because I feel like like you mentioned at the beginning, sometimes people think that academics are fucking squares. Like that that we like that we're, you know, not listening to the latest shit or whatever. Or or just like, you know, I don't know. I think there's like an archetype. Uh, but I am so happy that you painted this amazing picture um for for the people. And I could just only imagine uh, what that'll look like, you know, when and if the time comes that you know the, the the click can come together and and make something really radical and dope happen. Um, uh, that that's something that I wish for 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 many of us um, out here. And so, um, in in our final question here, uh, you know, earlier in the interview, um, you know, you dropped so many uh, knowledge bombs on us, and especially uh, graduate students, early career scholars. Um, and so I'm, I'm really thinking about the development of uh, political analysis. 
um, analyses on just so many different spaces. So do you have any tips from your own career and, you know, maybe ear hustling from other folk uh, as far as like how to develop one's uh, uh, political analysis, right? In terms of reading or specific books that you think that are just like, there's no way you can get out of just like reading this. Uh, But also, do you have any tips about also developing one's public writing voice as they traverse the the early career stage? Because, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the Boston Review said that your uh, cast uh, review was like one of the top read in all the year. And yet it was published in, I think, December, right? Yeah. Yep. December 15th. It was the number five most read, which is wild. (laughs) Super wild. Um, And again, that, you know, I wrote it, but again, it, the readership has nothing to do with me. It's number five because people read it. So that's, again, sort of like a collective thing. But um, yeah, for developing a political voice, it's sort of like, what are you committed to? Like, what are you willing, you know, what what would you put yourself on the line for? Okay. And once you figure that out, how do you become knowledgeable, not knowledgeable about it? How, you, how do you continue to sort of, um, to, to learn about it from different angles. Um, how do you continue to cultivate your interest and dedication to something? So for me, of course, it's Black liberation and socialism. You know, it's challenging intellectual McCarthyism. And so um, I think everybody has to figure out, like, what, what, it, what are you committed to, you know? Um, and how can you integrate that into various aspects of your life and in, uh, into your, your sort of writing and your reading? Um, and, you know, stop trying to be objective. I feel like, you know, in the academy, we are trained with this whole objectivity thing. And that's bullshit. Like, nobody is objective. Like, you know, and I think that we don't have time for whatever dispassionate analyses or whatever. Like, I think that you should still look to be sort of empirical and factual. It's not just how you feel. But we all have skin in the game. We all have a stake. And I think that that's fine. All of my writing is political. All of my writing is probably, you know, propaganda in it sort of or in, in the sort of um, denotational sense of the word. Every, everybody's is. Right. And so I think that owning that and realizing that and realizing that you're trying to make an, an epistemological and a, a political intervention um, and, and being sort of honest about that. I think it's really, really important. Um, but being, being clear, (laughs) the distinctions at the same time between ideology and method, um, Mm. sometimes that gets conflated. Um, I'll, I'll leave that there, but, um, I would say that, that is how you develop your sort of political voice. And, and it's like, don't force it. Some people are, most people are sort of, are liberals or moderates, and that is okay, right? The worst thing you could do is be liberal or moderate, but then try to, you know, try to have this radical or left-wing voice when you really want to bust a grape in a fruit fight for that. Don't do that. Like, be yourself, really sort of commit, commit to what you care about, and then organize your sort of, your intellectual production around that. Um, in terms of developing developing a public writing voice, I really don't. I really don't know, and I really I feel like I still really don't have that because, um, well, some people said that a lot of people did say my art, my Boston Review article, for example, was accessible and was you know others were like it's pedantic or whatever, and so and and 
that essay actually went, it goes through several editing processes, right? With, with um, editors from a particular um, publication. Mm-hmm. And so I think I still have an academic writing style that's it's full of footnotes. It's full of quotations. It's full of, you know, academic sources. And so I get, I guess the best way is to sort of um, what I will say, it's sort of like, don't hold on to a draft, get it. So it's good enough. Get your, your B plus workout or B, you know, B minus and send it out so you can get feedback. Right. I think that sometimes we're afraid of feedback or we're afraid of critique, but that is what's going to help you. Right. To to develop a a particular voice, especially if it's something that that doesn't come naturally. So. um, And also um, don't try to sound smart. Just try to sound like you. You know what I mean? I think that academics really struggle with that. We try to that we want to have you know, we want to be pithy. We want to be smart. We want to be. We want to have the most profound thing to say, like, fuck that. Like, I just be saying whatever. And then, you know, you can polish it up a little bit, but like, just, just sound like you don't try to sound like the most intelligent person in the room um, because nobody really cares about that. (laughs) Like, I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, uh, so, um, so that's, I think that's really important to developing a public voice. Oh, the other thing too, is like, be clear about what your takeaways are, you know, like, what do you want people to get from this is, you know, you can't just be a meandering random, you know, whatever, like have, have in mind, like, what do you want people to get from this? How can this be useful or, or practical or informative to, um, to a, whoever your public is. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Look, talking about liberation, that was a liberating word that you just provided in terms of getting that damn draft out because uh, <laughs> that, that is like, People would just be holding on to stuff and, and people, I mean me, be holding on to stuff. And it's like, like you, like you said, it's like kind of the meandering comes from uh, not, not meandering in the work, but more so meandering like maybe I need to add more. Maybe I need to find that that mythical footnote that will make everything like crystallize and come together uh, when in actuality it's just like, yo, get it out, because at the end of the day, um you know, it's it's going to get re- it, the red tape, the, the not red tape, but the red uh, could be red tape, but the red um, ink is going to come regardless. They're going to let the chopper sing on your work regardless. And so you might as well get it out so that it's the best um, and, and you ain't holding on to it for too many years. Um, and so, Dr. Sharice Burton Stelly, I really appreciate you for taking the time over the last hour plus to just talk about everything that I wanted to talk about and then more. And so I, I just like, I, I just want to let you know, like from the bottom of my heart, you're one of my favorite people out here in this world. And um, I, it's just a, uh, it's just a blessing um, to, to be your friend and, and uh, talk shit with and all that. Like, it's just, um, it, it's, it's a joy, like honestly. And, and uh, a lot of people out here are not joys to be around um, in person and, and, um, via the social media spaces. And so I just want to let you know uh, from, uh, for, from me that there are many people out here that really appreciate you for the work that you do. And more than anything, providing uh, a model uh, for people who are, you know, radical thinkers, yet don't really maybe see models out there who are in front of them in terms of where they, they're fitting 
in, in academe. And so really you're providing a model for so many other people that I think is just changing so many lives and will uh, down the road. And so just just want to let you know that. Put that on wax. Give you your flower. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. And like the bet, you know, listen, this is this is the of all the stuff that I have said today, this is probably the most important. Like I always told myself I will get as far as I get in the academy, be myself. So be yourself. Whoever if you're a square bear, be a square. If you're a nerd, be a nerd. If you're dope like me, just kidding. But if, you know, if you're if you're if you're unconventional or if you're boisterous, be just be yourself and let the chips fall where they may. Like that, I think is the most important thing. And I think that perhaps that may be one reason why my work or you know my presence or persona, whatever, has resonated with people. Because like I, I'm probably the same no matter where I am. <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. that is grossly inappropriate. I don't care because I'm me. So um, be yourself because you're dope and you're you. So, but thank you for that, Adam. That was very kind and thoughtful. And I appreciate those words because, you know, in these academic, the academic streets, people can make you, especially when you're yourself, they can make you feel like, you know, you're not, you're bad at your job or you're not doing it right. So appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. And uh, you know, later in in the in the in the spring, and uh, you know, definitely going to have to have you on for uh, for the Du Bois uh, a book that you uh, co-wrote with uh, uh, Gerald Horn as well. So uh, j- just uh, just wait on that. You know, that invite will be uh, coming out uh, once uh, once these comps uh, once his last comps exam is is taken care of. So I'm super excited to read that one. So. Um, thank you again, Dr. Sharice Burton-Stelly, for, for chatting with me on New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And y'all, please, if you love this interview like my Black ass does, then please go rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And so once again, folks, please do that if, if you would like. And I look forward to the next time uh, that we get to come together again. So until next time, folks. I'm once again Adam Neal, your host of New Books in African American Studies, over and out.